welcome to Infill, where we talk housing politics and policy. I'm Laura Foote with Yimby Action. I'm Scott Feeney, volunteer with Yimby Action. And we have very special guests from my hometown, Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Alex Baca. <laughs> my formal title is as Engagement Director of the Coalition for Smarter Growth. We are a 20-plus-year-old nonprofit advocacy group that works on housing, transportation, and land use issues in the D.C. region. And smarter. That means everybody who doesn't agree with you is dumb, right? That, yeah. There's, yes, the inherent, <laughs> <laughs> the inherent issue of, like, adding, like, a value statement to your group's name, I think, is something that will be long debated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny, because Yimbis get a lot of shit for the implication that everyone who's not us is therefore a NIMBY, which we didn't ever say... But I do think, like, I understand why people feel that way. And I also understand why, like, smart growth is kind of like, if you don't agree with us, you're dumb. Yes. Yeah, I don't think that smart growth did itself any favors by naming itself smart growth. And I do think sometimes people on the conservative side are, like, a little bit better at names that obfuscate things. Like, I don't, (laughs) like, I was, like, I mean, there was some, like, Joel Cock and trash talking going on earlier today, which is always, like, you know, rightfully deserved. But, like, he, like, his... Think Tank is the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, which doesn't say anything at all and is therefore, like, not so polarizing. Mm. Um, Whereas, like, I, you know, I work for a group that I think tries to steal or, like, steer a middle course and forge a lot of compromise. um, But it has this sort of inherent value statement in its own name that can turn people off. Um, Although you can just double down and be like, this is who we are. I don't know. (laughs) Well, so that's what I think we're excited to talk about today is the idea of like polarizing and like being in politics versus this idea of like being policy and the benefits of, and and how are we going to achieve our goal? Because I think there's a lot of debate within um, sort of housing discussions writ large, not just like Yimby, but all the people who've been doing it for a really long time about um, politics versus this idea that we could like be doing policy that would be like not in the not in the mud with <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah 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 the sort of um more neutral and compromised sort of like oh we can everybody can get behind this because it's a good idea which doesn't seem to work to me I don't think it works. <laughs> I don't think it works. And I think that that's something that I've been wrangling with a lot um, as an advocate. So this is not my first go around in D.C. Uh, advocacy. I worked for the Washington Area Bicyclist Association um, prior to leaving and moving here and then moving to Cleveland and then moving back to D.C. So I'm sort of back in a world that's super familiar to me and that I would definitely consider to be home for me, which is the D.C. advocacy community um, that works on the sort of like morass of, I don't even want to say like urbanist, but you know, that sort of mixes housing and transportation and how, where we live works the way it does. Um, so, but you know, bike advocacy certainly gets into that. Um, so, you know, this is something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about because both of these orgs, you know, my current org and WABA and many, many other orgs tend to be C3s. There's a lot you can do politically as a C3 that I think many groups are reticent to even max out. Um, because, well, so wait, so yeah. let's pause. <laughs> yeah, I'm like going way I too think far. It's, no, yeah. I think it's good to like say like, okay, 501C3 versus 501C4. Yes. A 501C3 is a non-political nonprofit. Um, it is tax deductible and they often have a more wholesome vibe. A, <laughs> and they're like saving the children or whatever, yeah. um, or doing educational stuff. 
And um, some of them, well, you know, we are not this. Many do tend to be direct services providers, which matters a little bit more on the funding side sometimes. Yeah, and and then you've got so the direct services and the um, education and like things that are not about endorsing candidates and getting into the sort of coalition politics and stuff, and then you've got five hundred one c fours. So Yimby Action is a not tax deductible, politically active nonprofit that actively does like citizen lobbying. Um, we help write legislation, we send letters to elected officials, and then most importantly, we do endorsements. And we say, we think this person is right, and we think that this person is wrong. Um, and we kind of, you know, for better or worse, right? Because there are costs associated with that. Um, when you say that somebody is wrong, uh, people don't like that. And, um, you know, getting out there and endorsing candidates and being part of coalition politics means that sometimes you're standing next to somebody, you know, I agree with them on housing and I disagree with them on other issues. That can be really, you know, difficult for members, for coalition politics, for kind of like, who are we and what do we stand for conversations. Um, but we've made the decision that we think that in order to achieve the policy goals, we have to be deeply involved in politics. Yes. Yeah. And I think that it's been it's been interesting for me to watch, you know, what you guys have been doing in San Francisco since I left. Um, So, you know, something that I said before we got started is that, like, you know, I lived here in 2014 and 2015 and this conversation was not really happening um, or at least not in a way that was accessible to me that I could find, which was weird to me because I've done a lot of like local political work as a volunteer and was obviously doing nonprofit stuff in DC and was like, this is my landscape. I understand this, but I can't find it. Um, and you know, that has changed since then and sort of watching Yimby action come online and be sort of newer than a lot of stuff in DC, um, has been interesting because you guys just sort of like went for the political guts of the operation and basically have treated this as constituency building, which is a, a thing that I think that we're not really doing where I live. <laughs> so, um, and that's something that, I mean, I would say that I am personally interested in changing because I'm very tired of getting a lot of people to go to meetings, which is part of my job and testify in support of something and then sort of be told that we're not looked at as a constituency. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing of like, how do you become looked at as a constituency? I, that's like what I spend all of my time thinking about. Like, how do you form a voting block make it visible and make sure that elected officials understand how valuable that voting block is and like want to cater to you. Right. And I don't, I just don't see how it's possible to get back to the policies. If you can propose policy all day and I love that part, right? I love sitting and thinking about like how things could be different and how the world could be different and what are the, you know, words that we need to put onto paper to get there. But fundamentally those, you know, words on paper are, implemented <laughs> by people who are elected and so if you can't get them to pass those things and then if you can't get them to implement them like in a way that works right because then that implementation varies based on who's your mayor and what budget they're willing to give to a certain department that's in charge of whatever that you're working with it's well, and, and like and then block by block right i mean like we'll see like bike lanes and stuff it's like well the person on that block like threw a house party for the supervisor and so they're slow walking something you know yeah. like that's the level i mean i do think that like 
it had to be the reason I think we were so immediate to get into the politics part of it and to be like, this is where this battle needs to happen is because like, I'm sorry, but like San Francisco is the worst. Like, <laughs> yes, yes, it is the trash city for politics. Yes, so, yes. So I think we we had the policy side in the form of Spur. Yeah, and other time. organizations. Yeah, we've had the policy people saying the right things for a long time, and it wasn't really going. Yeah, anywhere. Spur had some great ideas. I think they were pushing the inclusionary zoning dial for a while. Do you, do you remember that policy? A little bit. Yeah, it was that it would Id- be reactive. I thought, oh, is that how it worked? I thought the idea was just that you could build a higher percentage and they were like middle income or a lower percentage and they were like very low income. Oh, yeah. But then there was also talk about, so for inclusionary zoning, that you would have it be um, related to current market conditions. I Now I can't remember if that was a spur or if that was a hack thing. But in any case, yeah. I mean, these these are they're they great. They didn't go anywhere. They didn't go anywhere. I mean, but that's not to say like some 501c3s have written ballot initiatives and they've been good ballot initiatives and they've gotten passed. And yet overall we were worse than treading water. We were drowning. And like now we at least I think are going to stop drowning. Yes. Maybe. Maybe. Yes. (laughs) Well, it seems like you guys have like, like there is stuff lined up that may stop you from drowning, which is, which is, very important but also interesting (laughs) and you know spur is interesting i learned a lot from spur when i lived here and i definitely you know i work for an organization that is in many ways very spur like in its approach and i definitely don't want to condemn that or condemn like the important work however like there is you know it is you know those ideas like once again like don't really take root they don't really have teeth you can release a lot of white papers and they can be as well designed as you like and you can host as many forums as you want and you can try to reconcile that sort of ideological differences between both sides but I don't think that that meaningfully like gets anything to change it may prime people to get things to change but that like that leverage point to actually change something is probably an election not like a lunch session so yeah I mean I definitely I don't want to I do think that the ground is made fertile by that work but if you don't have somebody who then plants the political seeds the ground can be fertile for a long time and nothing can grow right because you need a political you need somebody who says okay i'm going to pick up all of these people who understand that the problem is a housing shortage all of these people who've been and who've been going to forums and who are like why does it keep not changing and who are angry and well educated you know it meant that we had a, a whole host of people that we could sweep up into a voting block relatively quickly. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important thing with advocacy in general is that you have to give people something to do. Yeah. It's not enough to just ideologically align with a group and give them money because like you need to give people something to do. And that's been something that like, we've been trying to figure out. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I work for a group that doesn't currently have a volunteer program because we don't, have an opportunity for people to volunteer in mm-hmm. part because we work with this sort of amorphous policy space that does have a lot of value, but like that doesn't, you know, I don't have things for people to plug into. Mm-hmm. And sort of saying, go to your, you know, local meeting about this is, is like critical to supporting the mission, not supporting the organization. And that's another, I think 
question that some of these longtime advocacy groups, especially that work in the land use space, are going to have to face as, you know, do we want people supporting the mission or do we want people supporting us? And what is that difference? Well, and, and hopefully, how do you do both? Because like, yes, I like I hate fundraising. So <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So like any amount of my time, like every donation, it's like what you've actually donated yes. is my time, not fundraising. So right. I want to like write specifically a thank you for that. So big thank you to all the Yimby Action donors. Yes, yes, yes. Give your local group some money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. In sort of my like hierarchy of being involved with stuff, which in like nonprofit management speak is like the ladder of engagement um (laughs) is like you know the very jumbled mix of like go to a community meeting like please write testimony like please just like offhandedly like email a department about something that you're mad about like be really vocal and also please donate to us (laughs) (laughs) smartergrowth.net slash donate anyway (laughs) i mean this is the other thing that's like i think that yimby figured out pretty early on um the, the self-organizing and the self-motivating and the clubs that we're starting to have now where, you know, you have leads who are able to send out action alerts that don't need to go through me. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think that a lot of the traditional C3 and a lot of like some political nonprofits that I've seen is that they end up with a real problem with everything has to go through paid staff and then you can't have... and and. Which is messy, right? I mean, grassroots organizing where people can whip themselves up is very messy, involves people sometimes getting mad at one another and like disagreeing about what priorities should be and like hashing it out. I mean, it's messy, but the benefits are so huge. Yeah, I think the older that organizations get is sort of, there's always a question around their own identity. And, you know, we, I think, have a lot of questions about what, you know, is there a centralized CSG voice? Like, is there usefulness in this being dispersed a bit? And I absolutely think that there is. I mean, and that goes back to that, like, mission versus organization and what do you put first? And I would say that, like, I am definitely, like, a mission before org person. I love my job. I love what I do. And I believe very much in our work. But it is, I believe in it because it's part of a mission. And if we can empower somebody to be a regular public meeting attender and speak, you know, in favor of things that we support, I don't necessarily care if they're speaking on our behalf or not. So I do view a lot of this stuff as a really big civic engagement project. Um, You know, we've made it really, really hard for people to figure out how to get engaged. I had a hard time figuring out how to get engaged in San Francisco. That is part of the reason that I moved away because that's something foundational to me. I was able to do that in Cleveland and I was able to move home to DC to do it there. Um, So I feel very strongly about giving people access to that, but it's challenging and it's messy and there's personalities and sometimes you don't always agree with people, but in general, you know, we have the elements of an ideology, right? Whether you want to call it smart growth or you want to call it YIMBY, like we're all kind of talking about this, like it's kind of a non-normative way of doing cities because it says yes to a lot of stuff when we have legal structures that are set up to say no to everything. I think that the elements of that ideology are all there, but making it into a constituency, not even a coalition, but a constituency that is acknowledged by both administrators and elected officials has been, I think that's a real challenge for us in DC right now. Um, And that's what I hope that we're moving something, anything (laughs) towards. Because I'm seeing failings on it. Um, It's interesting you say ideology and constituency. So those two words and where they intersect, right? Because I 
constantly with the sprawling Yimby membership. Um, to some degree, we have an ideology of like saying yes to things, of integration, of dense, vibrant, walkable communities for all. And another degree, you know, degree, we have like the widest range of ideologies about other topics that right. I have ever experienced. Right. Like I went to like a very liberal high school and college. So there actually wasn't a huge amount of ideological diversity. Like, yeah. you know, Yimby, I am constantly, um, you know, there's definitely like sort of a bell curve, but yes. like there are also <laughs> people at the ends of those bell curves. I mean, yeah, well, (laughs) urbanism has, like, a long history of being supported by conservatives. I mean, and we can argue over what, like, whether urbanism is a coherent ideology or not, but I guess, like, the idea that, like, cities are important and that we don't build walkable places in the U.S. anymore, like, sort of factors into that, Um, but... I mean, it's fascinating, like, Smart Growth America definitely, like, you know, was a huge promoter of this book called Movie Minds that was written by two conservative, like, think tank dudes that were, it's a book of case studies of, like, this is a conservative case for doing walkable urbanism. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very useful. It's very heavily based on economic development. It is not dissimilar to the content that Stronghounds puts out. And I've contributed to Stronghounds, even though, like, I am pretty way far to the left of Chuck Marone. And like, so there is space for, I wouldn't necessarily call it compromise, but like, I think that also like land use is so much bigger than most people realize. It is really, really foundational to a lot of stuff that we do. It's not a plank in a platform. Like it's literally where we put stuff. Well, and I think it also exposes these places where a lot of our like national ideologies are inconsistent and incohesive. Like land use, like, it's very nature of sort of it putting actual on the ground decisions up against stated values. Like you're constantly with people who oppose housing on the left and people who oppose housing on the right. You can find a like deep fundamental value why they should not be opposing you kind of on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> and it's always really, you know, people assume that if somebody's disagreeing with you on land use that they therefore are going to disagree with you on like other ideas. Like everything is so immediately put into an ideological framework. Right. I mean, especially in San Francisco, we just got out of the ADAM elections, which was really fun. Um, (laughs) Congratulations. Yes, we won. Um, And our coalition is considered uh, in San Francisco, the moderates, which I always think is hilarious. Like, we want to revolutionize land use and I'm in with the moderates, like, okay, whatever. Like, yes. that's funny. <laughs> um, and so this kind of like lineup of we're working with the really powerful janitors union who like, I guess are moderates. I don't know. Um, <laughs> like, okay. Um, organized labor. Okay. Um, San Francisco. But then like the, the diss against us is corporate Dems and sort of how do we square the these different ideologies against one another and how do we sort of accept where we are finding people who agree with us you know i want to find people who agree with us along all parts of the ideological spectrum thus far in san francisco the only ones who have decided to throw in with us are people who are capital m moderates it's and it and it's very i don't it's challenging i think i feel some tension with that i sometimes feel like i really don't agree with people in the moderate coalition on a lot of other issues. 
And so I think I think it's kind of two sided. Like there's this why why aren't the progressives throwing in with us? But then there's also like but we also, you know, promoted a slate of candidates that also had a bunch of moderates on it. Well, and this is the thing. Like now we're going to see, you know, is housing your number one issue? Right. So if housing is your number one issue in San Francisco, that means you have to endorse moderates because those are the ones that are doing the most pro housing stuff. If housing's not your number one issue, then it totally might make sense to endorse some of the other candidates. But it's like, I, you know, I don't like in other cities and towns, it's the far leftist person who's the most pro pro housing. And like, you know, it's it's fun when we get to endorse like a wide ideological like Oakland. It's really not. It doesn't square along those lines. And they're so close to us. Like, what is that about? Yeah. And I think this speaks to like the fact that everyone is able to wrap their heads around like why their commute matters or why, you know, where they live and what they live in matters. But in a lot of ways, we have not given sort of like the option to engage with that in a political way right I mean so a lot of times like you have people in power who are just talking about like I just want to park in front of something and that's a really (laughs) limited and reductive way to look at transportation and I think that like I do tend to be very critical about the role of communication and education in this space even though that is technically what my job is Um, that said I think that there is definitely a lot of space for like making that a just a broader and you know more interesting and more robust sort of discourse I think that's where you do want that's where there's a lot of space for media criticism too and I see this often with like writing about housing or writing about transportation is that like just like the the components of the story aren't there and I started my career in journalism I worked for Washington City Paper in DC and I feel like we had a lot of newsroom conversations about how to comprehensively cover something so that it wasn't reductive and it's not just you know it's like you don't just call the AAA spokesperson for a quote like you know what he's gonna say which is that like (laughs) we should be able to drive more like that's his interest that's his interest group but that's what so frequently reporters for the post will just call John Townsend and ask him for a quote about like transit and it's like don't ask the car guy about transit like (laughs) ask like like ask there's a lot of other people that you can ask about transit not just the advocates but you know you can even if you want to like ask a business owner like that at that point is like a little bit more complex and comprehensive than just calling the AAA spokesperson who's given the same quote for the past 15 years the thing that I notice in a lot of the articles is that they'll like cover the fact and not put any kind of like context on it so they'll do the like housing prices are really high here's a list of like all the prices and how crazy they are and they will not get into the why oh that bothers me so much it's like yeah and they don't even compare it either against other metros like there was this thing uh, in the Chronicle recently that was like San Francisco's, well, first of all, they called it a housing boom, which it's not. But, <laughs> right. but, then, but they, they also said... Do you think they've that, heard us tweet at them enough about that? <laughs> no, we should tweet more. Relative to what? <laughs> yeah. um, but they said even what we have now, that it's going to slow to a trickle next year. And then that was the whole article, was like the city and county of San Francisco, but it's like what's happening in, in Oakland, right. where they're building, like I think, three times as much as we are in San Francisco for a city half the size. That wasn't mentioned and then Seattle is like a slightly smaller city it's building five times as much as we are that wasn't in the article so like it'd be nice if they were like you know here's some context and whether whether that's normal and how not normal it actually is 
But I think that that, yeah, and so there's definitely, like, a role for media in this to do better, but I think that's why you get these sort of, like, fractured ideologies is that, you know, there hasn't been a sort of place where you can go where you can be the pro-transportation party or whatever that may be, or the pro-whatever party, and, like, so you get people from, like, all over the map who are just like, wait, this has just become my primary issue. I mean, people make trade-offs, like, all of the time in their lives. Like, the some of the research that I find the most interesting is, like, what people trade off when they decide to live somewhere. Like, whether that's, like, schools versus affordability mm. versus commute. So, like, I think people do the same thing with their, like, political sort of, like, things that they're interested in. Like, I actually, I'm super interested in, like, education as a political topic, but I don't have kids. And so, just in terms of, like, hierarchy of needs of things that I care about when I become civically engaged like the you know like I education kind of gets moved down on the list and housing gets moved way up on the list (laughs) I mean literally we're having that debate right now in San Francisco we got a windfall of about 141 million dollars back from the state and so there's this discussion what do we do with the 141 million dollars and like the different constituents it's even bigger than that it's 181 in any case (laughs) what we do with that money is now being debated right um matt supervisor matt haney had a big town hall about it everyone said housing 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 at the town hall he's been in education for a long time so he's a little like oh shouldn't we spend it on teacher salaries the teacher's lobby is going to be heavy on spending it on a raise there's a lot of complications about all of that you know you get down to like don't tell me what your values are show me your budget right and how do we decide what our top priority is in San Francisco and throughout the Bay Area, throughout California? How do we decide what is our top priority? The way that we have to do that is through people yelling at government and being a visible constituency that politicians want to appeal to. And like that work means that you have to do all these things that I think a lot of the like policy people who like a lot of the first people I met when I was sort of getting into this space really wanted us to not be quote so political. And it was like, I was like, I don't like, I hear you, but I'm not sure that that makes any sense. Like, why would we be less political? Like how, how would that work? It doesn't work is my, is my opinion. And I mean, like I, I say this, like working for a C3 and like, again, I have like so much respect for the movement that my organization is a part of, but I think that smart growth has tried very hard to depoliticize itself. And I think you see the effects of that. Um, you know, when there's this sort of like, Oh, well we've been doing this for so long. Like, are we not like, you know, we were Yimbies before Yimbies were Yimbies. And it's like, well, like, I think that what's interesting about what's going on right now and sort of how I've come to this movement is that it is explicitly political. And like, I want to vote for somebody who reflects my values, but I can't find a candidate that really does that. So I have to like vote for somebody who I think might best possibly represent them and then be really noisy. Like that's not, that's like not an effective way to build an interest group because like, once again, you kind of lose out on giving people stuff. There's not discrete, you know, stuff for people to do. It's like hard to be engaged. It's hard to latch on to something. And like, you know, I don't want to like disrespect my elders. Cities were in very different places 15 years ago and the economic calculus of how to make stuff work when you had essentially like cores that did not have a tax base that could support what they needed to do in the suburbs mm-hmm. were sort of sucking out everybody's lifeblood. Like it was very different and I understand that and I want to respect that. I also don't know if we were served super well by just essentially like compromising over and over. Um, so 
And that's like, I get, I get why that was the right choice at the time. <laughs> I would go even further than that. The fact that I am constantly in the debate, right? It's, it's, it's painful, right? I mean, it is, you have to like go and have people like question whether you're a good person all the time. That is what it means, especially in San Francisco politics, which is the meanest place on planet Earth. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is mean at a level that like is shocking. And I, I also totally understand why like other people like get a glimpse at San Francisco politics and they are horrified, right? Like they look at like the idea that it's like housing Twitter is mean. I'm like, no, no, no. It's San Francisco political scene is mean and it like dribbles into housing Twitter. Right. Like it is San Francisco <laughs> infecting the rest of the world. And I will, I am sorry. But that meanness means that you are constantly like, I try to make sure that I don't put on like battle armor, but that I like hear the critiques, right? When, because like the critiques are coming at you all the time and they are deep and they are vicious. And like to some degree, it's been good. Like I've had to grow from them. You know, we've had to very quickly, like, say, you know, keep the ideas that were good, change our way of speaking to one another, realize that there's like a real big problem with people lying about what our positions are. Okay, so I have to be more militant. Like, as we grow, you have to be more militant about our support for affordable housing. Like, they were they were lying. Like, people who don't like us lied about our support for affordable housing. Okay, that's fine. Like, I can't actually stop that from happening, but I can make sure that we do a lot to be visibly pro-affordable housing. Right. And I, I think, like, so, okay, note on, like, the Twitter export of, like, San Francisco. It's hilarious. <laughs> like, I have to repeatedly explain to people in D.C. that, like, the factions are different. Like, it's not the same. Right. Like, don't talk about housing as if it's in San Francisco. I mean, like, Prop, Prop 13 alone means that you basically can't, you cannot replicate that conversation in uh, other yeah. places. So, like, and then you get down to the, like, very, like, kind of factions about all of this <laughs> stuff. Um, but I do think that, you know, doesn't, doesn't community planning and community agreement sound so much nicer? Like, doesn't it sound so much nicer to build a coalition and have a success where people are super happy with this stuff? But, <laughs> but I am not sure that that moves the needle, right? Um, I was talking about this at a party recently where I'm trying to take community out of a lot of our communications oh, um, so because I don't think that it's super meaningful. Um, and I think that we use it to make people feel good, but we don't, I don't think that's honest. Um, it's too bad Sam's not here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't, I, I also like, I find communities to be very self-selecting. Like mm -hmm. when I think of what I'm a part of and what I would consider claiming as my own community, I think that's very self-selective and subjective. Well, and structure is so selective for what community ends up meaning. I mean, I look like different ways of structuring your quote unquote community meeting are going to have entirely different outcomes, different structures of like, I am constantly amazed at how you can have different people show up to things. If you make something be like this meeting will happen, it's like an agenda item that will take place somewhere between five and 8 PM. Okay, the people who are going to be like, therefore, I'll show up and dedicate two hours to sitting there waiting for my agenda item to declare myself part of the community is different than the people who would answer a poll. Right. And like, how do we measure who is the community varies greatly by system. 
Yeah, and I don't want to talk about this, but it's why my username was community for whomst on Twitter for like six months. <laughs> like it's like exactly that. Um, but but I think that like you know the nastiness of like the politics side and the you know stress and exhaustion of that. Like when the imagined alternative is like, can't we just get in a group and forge a compromise, and therefore like everyone will sort of feel as though they're getting what they want? Isn't that such a nicer way to move forward? Like yeah, it is. I also have never seen that work. Yeah, I, mean, I can't. That is what politics is. Like, the thing is, like, us not stabbing each other and, like, physically assaulting one another, <laughs> and in fact, engaging in politics where we debate the ideas. And, like, sorry, in San Francisco, it means you, like, call each other names and are awful to one another. But, like, okay, like, I wish that we could have the discourse in politics be nicer. But th- when people say, can't we all get into a room and debate these issues and, like, come up with something that we all like? Like, we are doing that. That is what going and electing people to the Board of Supervisors is. Right. And, like, we have to fix that system so that, like, there's not less selection bias for this and that. But, like, the room where the decision is made is a political room. Right. And I was trying to think through, like, some D.C. examples. These are things that, like, I've worked on or, like, are present right now. And it's all things that, like have been kind of compromised to death to please I'm not really sure who. Like, at that point, like, when you have, like, agencies and elected sort of continually prioritizing a sort of imagined group of people because they don't want to deal with, like, the liability (laughs) of people getting mad at them, which happens all the time. This is to say nothing of, like, the stuff that I was working on in Cleveland. Like, it's not even, like, death by a thousand cuts. It just, like, you're trying to make this... Like, you don't want to piss anybody off. So we have, like, the 16th Street bus lanes in D.C. are, like, should be a dedicated bus lane. They run from Silver Spring to downtown D.C. The buses are packed. Like, they hold so many people. And it's, like, two lanes of traffic and there's parking. And you should take out the parking and make it a dedicated bus lane. And this is, like, not challenging. And my org has been working on this for, like, six or seven years. And I remember, like, leaving comments on this project before I left D.C. And then I moved back to D.C. And the first meeting that I went to was about the 16th Street bus lanes. (laughs) 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 And I was so mad. And the people on that bus are not seen as constituents who are like an organized, visible voting bloc. Right. But it's like, there's so many more of them than there are of you. Like, what is yes. like, um, and, but, but like, this is a good example where like DDOT has a plan for this. The implementation of this is, is taking, it's going to take a good amount of time. And I, you know, I understand how long implementation takes, like whatever. Okay. But we have like a half, a half a loaf on this project. It's like dedicated some of the way and then not any other oh. of the way. And it's like, what, like, and so this is an example of like, you know, they did a very extensive public outreach process. My <laughs> organization got lots of people to submit comments i have submitted apparently multiple comments over many many years Um, and you know we still we get something that frankly is going to suck for everybody and so i like that's like just a good prevalent example it's on the forefront of my mind because it's like right outside of my apartment now um and like you guys are still talking about like red painted bus lanes in san francisco so i had to get mad about that today (laughs) it's it's funny because coincidentally we're about to put a, a red bus lane on our 16th street which is also oh my near God, my synergy. <laughs> and in that one too there's only going to be a red bus lane on one side of the street because they didn't want to take out parking <sighs> even though there's parking one block away and other other block that's so this is where i'm actually quite hopeful about the change in conversation that we have like we have made the constituency visible we have succeeded in that. And so there are extremely smart politicians, especially 
you know, frankly, Governor Gavin Newsom went further this past with his budget and whatnot, went way further than I think a lot of people expected. And I think it's because he's extremely savvy politically. And he was like, the thing that is happening right now is a bunch of people yelling about housing as a crisis. They're yelling in this direction. They're growing. And like, I'm going to be their guy. And Gavin, thank you. Like, <laughs> I see you. I see your budget. It is full of funding for affordable housing. I see your budget that has big sticks for recalcitrant suburbs who do not want to build a ha- uh, do not want to build housing. Like, he saw the constituency and he wants to get ahead of it. And he saw the like coalition that we're bringing to it of all of the different interests that are aligning under this one idea of we need a shit ton more housing. I mean, it is it's interesting to me because it's kind of the inverse of the Minneapolis model. The Minneapolis model was that like community outreach process that like, I, I mean, like, I don't know, man, like then I'm like, maybe like all the nice people should move to Minneapolis because like how did like they did it. Why would also like Lisa Bender has been sort of like standing this for over three years. So there was a lot of lead from an elected official on their council and she's council chair. So I actually think that that speaks to an acknowledgement of a constituency. And I mean, it's helpful that she is or was a planner or she has mm-hmm. a planning background. Um, but that, you know, she was able to take advantage of this politically. So I loved the design of their outreach process. I don't think that they would have gotten the outreach process for what they were talking about if they didn't have the political leadership. Interesting. And if that political leadership hadn't recognized that there was like a constituency, I mean, they were right because not only is there a constituency there locally, like there's a constituency there nationally where people are like, Oh my God, Minneapolis. And then we all like share the articles and whatnot, which I hope then ends up demonstrating you know, the politics is imperfect. That feedback loop between the elected official and the people who potentially will vote. You know, they only have weird ways of measuring. Until it's election day, you don't know whether or not your appeals to various constituencies are working. And so how do we kind of, like, get them as much feedback as possible that, like, this is the direction we want you to go? You know, it comes in the form of, like, op-eds. It comes in the forms of tweets. It comes in the form of letters to your supervisor. It comes in the form of having a club and having your very local elected official come and speak to you about your local issues. And where your donations are coming from. I mean, that's that's a huge factor. I mean, throwing house parties for local (laughs) elected officials, like, a thousand percent. The other way that you demonstrate that you have a voting block is by engaging in these like, you know, on one level, like petty local politics and the other hand, extremely important local politics, like the ADEM election, which everybody in San Francisco should know. And and California, these whole um, assembly district election meetings are taking place now for the like rest of the month um, in every assembly district in the state. This is a like place where you get a small group of people out to be voting for a slate for a public reason and your local assembly member like is like counting votes. Only 2000 people voted in the East Side San Francisco ADEM race. The fact that we mobilized about 200 people was extremely significant for our elected official. Um, it was also an example where we had to engage in a lot of like coalition politics. You have to form a slate 
And that slate is made up of people who you're going to be in alliance with. Whether you totally agree with them on their pet issue, you agree with them enough to be able to form this very important coalition where, okay, we have like five issues that this slate is about. One of them is housing, right? I get to be on the slate to represent the housing interests to say this is part of this coalition. Um, you know, then labor is a big part of it. Then, um, the Yemeni community was really cool to work with. They are so freaking organized. Like, by the way, like I like major shout out to the Yemeni American community. Cause like you all are extremely organized in San Francisco. Um, and business plays a big role in that. I know you were talking earlier about this. Yeah. Yeah. So we, something that my org worked on last year before I joined, but something that I was following closely was dedicated Metro funding in the DC region. So, uh, WMATA is our, transit system does not have dedicated year-over-year funding. So that meant that basically the board had to go to Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. and, you know, beg for money yearly. So when you're basically lobbying for... Do they just... What makes them say yes? It's a major regional economic driver. Okay. I mean, the D.C. metro is the backbone of the region. You right. can't... In the same way that BART is in many ways a transportation backbone of this region, like, you cannot get around how critical that is for mobility and access. So it's really important, but... You know, when but you everybody ha- has an incentive to say, well, why doesn't somebody else pay for it? Right? Yes, which is what would happen. Yeah. And so this would happen year over year, and it would waste a ton of time. And it was one of the few systems in the U.S. without a dedicated, reliable year over year funding stream. So um, we were part of the Metro Now Coalition, which uh, passed dedicated funding for WMATA, which is awesome. It only goes to capital stuff. Um, but the business community was a huge, huge, huge part of that. And I, frankly, have a lot of qualms with that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I didn't talk much about living in Cleveland on this but something that i struggle with a lot is that like cleveland basically has a very sclerotic local government because there's kind of a business focused shadow government that <laughs> like that have crawled over that and so i have my reservations about this to be clear that said you know businesses are viewed as a constituency in dc and in the region and in many 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 places so i think the timing was very opportune um to consider funding for metro when this passed earlier this year but that you know that coalition did have a lot of business support in addition to the grassroots support which we kind of represented um and we won which is super important and means that the metro board doesn't have to lobby for funding every year which was just a massive time suck and we have a lot of other problems to solve congratulations <laughs> yes. that's great yes. yes shout out to the metro now coalition and my csg co-workers who handled this before i showed up <laughs> people say business community in san francisco but like really it's a very fractured constituency because, I mean, I have no idea if this is similar to other places, but like on one level, we've got the big tech companies and some of them are somewhat organized into some organizations that like represent the large Bay Area tech companies. And then you've got and, and like do the tech companies lobby for themselves or do like are, do they even have aligned interest really? Right. It, does Lyft really have at all similar interests to Twitter? Like kind of. Yeah. I think sometimes that, on yeah, some issues yeah. like they want all of their staff to be housed. Right. That's an issue. I think that there's just as much sort of diversity of opinion in that as there is anywhere else, which is, I mean, frankly, why it drives me nuts when I hear stuff that's like, well, this is anti-business. And it's like, well, what does that actually mean? Right. And that's that's been a sort of rising issue in D.C. Um, where I 
you know, there is lingering concern over uh, whether or not we will have a business base in the city, um, which is kind of crazy. I mean, you're DC at this point in this time, like $2.4 billion dollar rainy day fund right now. It's not the 90s. Um, and I get the fear. I've, I've said this before in many, many other places. Wait, what but, does that mean? Okay. <laughs> so, so DC can't run a deficit or else a congressional control board oh, takes right. over. So I take the threat very seriously. I understand it. And like, I want to, you know, like this is not to like you know shit on anybody who's worried about that. I think it's a really important thing to think about. But the terms of this are very different um, than they were in the '90s, and I, I think that you know this the intense focus on like the oh like the business community is sometimes the like oh like Yimbus think this thing. It's like it's not this monolithic block, no. and you need to be sensitive to that when you're delivering criticism and when you're creating policy. So like you know we aren't. Monoliths. Like I'm sure there's no, people who businesses like... <laughs> have totally different incentives. Like this is also where you get into this weird kind of thing where like the Chamber of Commerce and like small business representatives and the Golden Gate Restaurant Association versus like all of their individual restaurants. You know, a lot of the restaurants and uh, small businesses kind of will end up with weird two minds about things. On the one level, like it seems like the chamber and other business organizations like recognize that we have a labor shortage, that the cost of housing is too high, we need a lot more housing. At the same time, like you get down to this level where the individual businesses are really worried about losing the parking spaces in front of their business. And so like you end up with like, how do we get especially the small business community to think holistically about housing and transportation and about people like walking to their front door. Right. And that is like this huge challenge (laughs) where like the chamber on one level will like agree with us about like the need for housing. And then on another level, like doesn't want taxes. So doesn't want to spend money on affordable housing, even though like, frankly, like that's a lot of their workforce and then doesn't want to necessarily like challenge a lot of their members by like saying like, guys, like I get that you think that the red bus lanes are going to be bad for you, but like actually look at all these statistics about how increasing transportation in this neighborhood is going to be more people are walking and shopping in your neighborhood. And like those levels of the discourse and disconnect are like when someone's like the business community thinks X, I'm like, okay, like, please do a poll of your own membership (laughs) because I don't think that that is true that the business community thinks squat. Whenever people say that about the community in any form, it goes back to community for (laughs) whom? Community for whom? Yeah, I mean, and I would even say, like, in the, like, red bus lanes, is like, okay, well, so much of this stuff is, like, topical and it's hard to recycle things from issue to issue, right? Because those those constituencies sort of, like, fracture and reform and, like, people take different sides on different things. And so with, like red bus lanes like there's actually probably a huge constituency of i don't know, bus riders who would probably like their bus to be on time and they may be more inclined to use that bus to get to small businesses because it's more reliable yeah. um so that is sort of an existing constituency that we're maybe not paying attention to in this conversation because it's just easier to focus on like what a business owner told mission local this is why i think one of the things i think we are doing right at yimby action although it is like difficult and time consuming is constantly having this like never ending feedback of conversation between our members. And like when I go wear the hat in a meeting and I'm like, Yimby action says X, right? Like we need to do more of it. It's a lot of work to make sure that you're like 
keeping in touch with what the membership actually thinks and making sure that you're telegraphing to the membership, like, here are the choices that are being made in meeting X, like, here's why this debate is happening and here's where I think we can leverage and all lobby in this direction if everybody sends an email about this thing. And having that feedback from, like, the membership taking leadership of, like, I'm going to go have a meeting with our supervisor, you know, and get that information back to me. Like, I don't meet with the supervisors as much anymore, which is great. Like, having the, like, I don't know what to call it, like, middle management of membership, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, well, you do want this to be dispersed, right? And yeah. I think that that's part of that movement building is that, like, the more that you can empower people to show up, it's not just one person showing up. And, like, you see people saying no and showing up in opposition to things and having that being treated as a default because those people have been able to go out and show up and their their ideology is treated as the like hegemonic like default norm <laughs> um even though that that may not be true a lot of the initial upsetness right especially from like older homeowners was like they had never had someone say i disagree with you they were like you must be being paid to have this opinion. I'm horrified <laughs> that you would think or say these things. And like you, you're accusing me of not thinking about the future and my kids and all these things. Like, how dare you? You know, there was this like, just getting people physically in the room, having the conversation made people very angry right so that's the same everywhere and i think scott wants to talk about things that are the same and different in dc and san francisco <laughs> which are places that we all have experience with which is lovely <laughs> yeah so dc has a different set of issues like dc has its it's like height limit set by congress i don't think the height limit is like that much of an issue but it should be be raised <laughs> well it's a difference it's because difference. in san yeah. francisco we have like the a few skyscrapers we have like a, a financial district that like it looks like you you've got like a dense forest of skyscrapers as you come towards it on the bay bridge but then you realize it's just like one block thick you know and then suddenly it's like low-rise three-story buildings whereas in dc you have like that mid-rise height but then you have more of that mid-rise height yeah i mean we have the monumental core um we are the capital of the united states <laughs> um, we don't have control over our own budget we're not a state we don't have voting rights um that's my rant uh, that's a big difference <laughs> um so but the waterfront is like tall and big so uh, my sister lives yeah, right near there actually, yeah so. yeah so dc has a zoning code that there's like two layers where it's like the zoning code and then the height limit and sometimes we don't build to the height limit because the zoning code is shorter than the height limit. Um, so that's when you go through the planned unit development process, which I don't want to talk about because technically I'm on vacation. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, so the waterfront, you know, we've started to, to build up the waterfront. Um, BART and Metro are sister systems. I mean, they were built at the same time. A lot of the reasons that, or they they both have stronger EDA accessibility um, than a lot of other systems because of when they were built. Um, so I have not read the history of BART, but I have read the history of Metro. <laughs> <laughs> the Great Society Subway. Yes. Um, Zach Shag, wherever you are, he wrote a very important book. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, my joke when I moved out here was that San Francisco was a worse version of D.C. Because <laughs> in 2014, it felt like all of D.C.'s problems were like here, but more intense um, with mm. like housing and sort of broken transportation and stuff and and regionally yeah 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 so i'm reading alex shaffron's book right now um the road to resegregation which is one of the first things that i've read about the bay area that really addresses like the scope of the regional issues um and a friend of mine like we we got coffee this week and he was saying that like one of the reasons that like he was very much like you know like la county is la county and the san francisco bay area is just this like morass of things um and that was never like that is very much the way that i think about dc and it's the way that i thought about northeast ohio and it was not at all like prevalent in the conversations that i was having about planning when i lived here but i was also not having that many conversations about planning because i didn't know anybody (laughs) doing it so yeah i think we are having finally those conversations about i mean we're having conversation at the state level yeah like about how we're going to like make more statewide minimums that are going to affect regions, right? But I also think that with this like CASA proposal and like the YIMBY movement is very like getting people to think about things regionally, getting, you know, busing us down to Cupertino to say, Cupertino, you are affecting San Francisco um, and getting more of that region-wide conversation happening. I think... I mean, I do think we've done a lot of good to move that part of the conversation forward, especially just thinking and talking about how we have 101 cities and towns that make up the Bay Area. Each one of those cities and towns is making decisions informed by Prop 13 that are causing their, they have all of the wrong incentives and they each make selfish decisions. I mean, because they have a constituency there that says, please look out for the members of our community, which like is a political structure problem where we have designed a system that selects for each city and town to think about each city and town and then the whole system falls apart. And it's every city doing its own, like every city has its own planning commission, right, in California. Yeah, Whereas fucking nuts. In At least in the D.C. suburbs, it's mostly the counties making the decisions, right, outside of a few areas? Yeah, so Montgomery County and Prince George's County do operate at the county level, um, as does Virginia, but Virginia is a Dillon rule state, so I think that a lot of the county board of supervisors in those jurisdictions um, both... Uh, mm, it's this weird sort of psychological thing of where I actually don't think that they go far enough because they are afraid the state is going to slap them back, hmm. um, which is something that you get with preemption in a lot of places. This was very much the case in Cleveland, um, where they were worried that state level preemption was going to sort of like push back on things that they would work on at the city level. Um, so Sweet. Virginia I, being a I'm Dillon sure. Rule state, I'm not sure <laughs> everybody that. knows what Dillon Rule means. So Dillon Rule means that every Every locality can only do the things that the state explicitly allows it to do. Pretty much. Yes. That's, yes. Yeah. Preemption. (laughs) So I'm actually uh, specifically from Northern Virginia, Fairfax County. And so an interesting thing about the Commonwealth of Virginia is that in Virginia, cities are independent from counties. So if you are in a city, you are not in a county. Oh, weird. (laughs) Yeah. It's... Virginia's yeah. Virginia's weird. And Virginia also has a rule that, like a state law, that any you can't create a new city. I think that's over two hundred thousand people in population, and it's designed basically to prevent Arlington County, which is right over the river from D.C., from becoming a city, because the Republicans in the state house just you know don't like Northern Virginia and don't want it to get more power. Man, yeah. So there's and you see a lot of so that's like states have anti-city 
biases. <laughs> and like, that's a good example of one. Um, I would say, you know, the state of Ohio, at least in terms of its, what it chooses to fund. And I think you especially see that with transit um, presents a sort of very anti-city ethos. Um, yeah, it's so interesting, the, the anti-city thing, right? I mean, yeah. I do think that it's like <laughs> systemic anti-city at all these different levels. And you, there are all these ways in which we have the, that people obviously want to urbanize, right? Human beings want to move to cities. And yet we have all of these political forces pushing back of like the existing power structure saying like, no, 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 no. How do we sort of disempower these cities from being, from growing? How do we keep people out of the like places that want to densify and become, and how do we like make sure that their votes matter less? Yes. How do we like, there's just this systemic anti-urban thing throughout our nation. And then you have people like trapped in rural America where there aren't good jobs and like where like it's things aren't necessarily going to quote unquote come back but there is opportunity and so like if we could just allow people to be where there is opportunity we would see less human misery yeah and i there's like there's so much to pull apart in terms of that anti-city bias i think a lot of it is norms i think a lot of it is you know we have encoded racism into a lot of our laws Mm -hmm. um you know you can't I don't think that you can disentangle zoning from a you know racial preference of white people who are in charge of writing those laws, um, and that sort of very much influences our built environment. I think Clayton Nall's work on highways and highway spending is really interesting. Um, where we choose to put highways, what we avoid and what we put them through, um, yeah. I think says a lot about our spatial preference as a country. Um, and fundamentally, we operate with a huge fear of an other. And I think that that manifests itself in our built environment, which is stupid. It doesn't have to be yeah. like that. I mean, it's it's bigoted and challenging and ugly. And I think, you know, when you talk about something, you know, whether it's through like Rothstein's color of law or even with Crabgrass Frontier, which was definitely, you know, say, making the same arguments in the 80s, um, that we see all of this stuff manifest in our built form. And it's, it, it start at this point is like things that are just anything that's not normative is basically treated as problematic. Um, you know, I wrote about adult dorms in San Francisco earlier this year and people freaked out about that because it was like, Hey, who wants to live in a dorm in San Francisco and pay a lot of money for it. Um, and to me, it's not the dorm or paying a lot of money for it. It's the fact that, you know, you might be a person who doesn't want to live your life in a single family house or that that's not where you are. Well, I'm like, who would want that? Well, obviously the people who want to live there want that. Like, so it's like, <laughs> right. like, it's right. very, like the, the answer is very obvious. Well, I also, why, why yeah. do you call it, why do you call it adult dorms? Why don't you just call it like the marketing term co-housing? Um, cause like that's that. what we put in the headline and that's what that piece has gotten sort of treated uh, as. Cause that is and, good and, clickbait. Yeah. It's, cl- it, yeah. It's, I mean, it's clickbait. I also like, I know that we need to like talk about things in certain ways to make them appeal to lots of people. I also like, that is something that I don't, care about in a lot of ways like I know we need to do it but this is this is actually like why I need to like not sometimes be in a communications job because like I do think it's important I do think it's important to sell things as maybe like mansion like anti-mansion rather than like anti-single family zoning like I get the you know point of using a catchy apartment bands apartment bands like that that like to entrench that but also like you know what are you like 
what are you talking about? Like, I guess my hope is that in some ways this stuff becomes so normalized that it's like not super problematic to sometimes call things what they are and not have to triangulate around other people's feelings to get things. Well, I like adult dorms. <laughs> I, just I think you think like, you know what it means. But when I just someone think says it, you're like, I know what it means. Inherent in calling it adult dorms is you're framing it in a way where the fact that adults would live this way is non-normative. Yeah. No, I, I totally, totally hear you. I think I just, yeah. I what want was the to... other thing that they used to have in the olden days? Like workforce housing? SROs? No. Um, boarding some... houses? Boarding houses. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. It's basically that. Yeah, yeah. It's a shared kitchen. So I think there's a lot of different ways to phrase this stuff. I think like when you're doing a marketing, right? Like <laughs> you want to be careful mm-hmm. about that. Um, I also, you know, in many ways would hope that we could get to a diversity of housing types that it's not it's not a it's not so fraught to to have to like make that appeal to someone who might have a knee jerk reaction to it being called one thing when it's also another thing. <laughs> right. And that it would be like kind of like a little human interest story as opposed to like something controversial. It's like, look, people live differently than you. Fascinating, right? The way we write about every other kind of niche community um, in a like, I don't know, maybe eventually non-judgmental way. I want to pull back though to what you were saying about kind of the race aspects because I've been thinking a lot about the level of resentment about how like the middle incomers is one thing that like was thrown against Yimby for a while was like, well, you guys just care about the middle incomers. And I think a very valid thing about, you know, now that the crisis is affecting quote unquote, upwardly mobile young white kids is when we're going to solve it. And I think that's like super valid. Like, I think that this is as a society, it is true that now that a bunch of yuppies are being affected by it is when we're going to muster the political will to solve it. And like, we should all be embarrassed about that. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't use all of that political power and solve it and solve it in an equitable way and like make it a broader conversation but, like, I totally get that level of resentment about, like... Yeah, know. it's totally true. There's nothing to say about it other than that. Is that, like, yeah, it's true. That's why you're engaged with this. That's why I'm engaged with this. Is that, like, you know... And I think the fear is that once we fix it for the, the middle-income white people, that we'll just be like, oh, yeah, resolved. check, done. Away. Yeah, I think that's... And that's valid, too. I think we should be thinking about that be aware of it at all times and therefore like do things as activists to make sure that we don't i would say that you know you're not just solving for the middle income ideally right is that like a lot of the things that you need to do to make housing more affordable at a bunch of different levels like i mean that that works across the board generally and you are all working against that sort of single family paradigm preserving wealth as an investment through housing so you know, this doesn't get anybody off the hook from having to unpack and wrangle with what they're doing. I would say, though, that, you know, the opposition to 100% affordable housing is just as sincere as the opposition to luxury condos. And those are, you know, when you clear space for that 100% affordable housing, in many ways, that means clearing space for a lot of other stuff just by virtue of what you're doing, because you're probably changing a zoning code. You may be electing somebody who is <laughs> pro-housing overall. Um, you may be changing, you know, other elements of like a like a design process or a community input process. Like 
that's kind of, you know, if we want to take lessons from something like universal design, you know, making things ADA compliant makes things better for everybody, not just for people who are using wheelchairs or carrying a lot of things like that. So, well, and this is also like good coalition politics of like, if we're doing things right and we're, we're demonstrating a commitment to other pieces of the coalition that are really important you know, they see that. I mean, we've made a lot of movement, um, especially with affordable housers. You know, the people who build and maintain affordable housing, um, they understand the challenges of the development process. They often work with market rate developers on, you know, joint market rate and nonprofit projects. They want to be able to build more. They want more funding. They have policy goals. Like we share many of those policy goals. It's very easy for us to be like, cool, how do we make sure that we work together on, you know, last time it was the $4 billion bond. How do we make sure that we help achieve this joint goal and help you know that you have a, a valuable ally in us? Um, I think that's going to be the ongoing mission for the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, and I think all of that is super important, just making space for people's voices and to remove the barriers that we've put up to that. And there are many. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening to Infill. This has been Laura with Yimby Action. Scott. Alex, thanks so much for having me. Laura and Scott, it was great to talk to you. Yeah. And have a good trip back to D.C. Thank you. (laughs)